This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, today... As many of you are aware, marks um, 21 years to the day uh, that 19 hijackers, Islamic extremists, took over four commercial airliners and flew two of them into the World Trade Towers in New York City and one into the Pentagon and um, one crashed due to the courage and tenacity of the passengers uh, in a field in Pennsylvania that was uh, no doubt headed for Washington, D.C. as well, and ignited uh, really what had been simmering for two or three decades, a clash and a war of civilizations, and uh, one that really was based on values. Uh, September the 11th was an attack not just on the people of the United States, but on the values that have shaped Western societies and the United States in particular, values that have provided platforms and spaces um, that have uh, more and more and more and more led to greater acknowledgments and freedoms of individual rights and dignity um, and liberty. And we saw an evil unleashed and laid before the world over the last uh, 20 years that we had not seen uh, since Nazi Germany, a barbaric sort of ideology that delights in beheading people online, delights in turning children into suicide bombers and using women and children as shields, um, all promoted and fueled by a value system that creates a very different culture and a very different worldview. As we come to the conclusion of our study in the book of Colossians this morning, we will have done uh, every word of every verse from chapter 1 all the way through to the end of chapter 4. I was thinking uh, about this day last night. I was watching Dumb and Dumber. Anyone seen that movie? Anyone fans of that movie? Yeah, it's like you got one over here, you've got like 20 over here. So, our, our church sort of sits uh, based on age, so, um, but yeah, when, when the, the woman that Lloyd, the limo driver in the beginning was taking to the airport, when she left a, a briefcase sitting on the jetway as she was going down, Lloyd was looking through the glass and he noticed, and he had, of course, fallen deeply in love with her in the six minutes she'd been in the limousine uh, with him, and so he ran in and retrieved the briefcase And he just ran into the airport, ran down the terminal, grabbed the briefcase, and ran down the jetway even with uh, the worker there saying, no, 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 and just ran right off of it because the plane had left and fell down onto the tarmac. But I was thinking, I I do remember a time when it was almost that easy to go into the airport, right? It was was a quick process to go through what, uh, what... I guess, um, stood as security back then and get on the airport. You could basically take uh, anything on the airplane you wanted, short of a grenade launcher. Um, It was a great time. It was a naive time. Um, And we've learned a lot since then. But I think 
uh, when we come to a place in Scripture like the closing remarks of Colossians, we often skip over it. We just do. We skip over them as preachers. Um, you could go to, to 10 series that preachers have done at churches on Colossians, and probably 8 out of 10 would skip this last section. Um, but I do think it's in the Word of God for a reason. I remember having a professor in undergraduate uh, my senior year make this statement. At first, I wrestled with it, uh, but I've come to understand he's exactly right, that uh, all Scripture is equally authoritative, though it is not all equally significant. And while I will say uh, with honesty this morning, you would not put the closing remarks of Colossians on the same plane as a, a Romans chapter 8, right, or a John chapter 15 or Genesis 1. Um, as I read through and read through and read through these verses this week, I came to understand that part of what Paul was doing as he was making his closing remarks to Colossians was pulling back the veil on some kingdom values, some kingdom values that both drive and characterize those who are truly in Christ. And it's a great way for him to close his letter to the Colossians, a great way for God to close down our time in this series through the book of Colossians, looking at these values that characterized true kingdom citizens and seeing almost with them as a plumb line beside our lives how we're doing. Turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. If you've got the app open, you can follow along in the sermon notes section. And I will let you know that if you use the sermon notes section and it has the little blue boxes there, those are boxes you can tap on and, and take notes in there as you feel led to do. So let's start with Colossians chapter 7. As Paul, or chapter 4, I'm sorry, verse 7, as Paul winds down his letter to the church of Colossae. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our experiences and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. Remember, Paul is writing from, uh, from prison, possibly in Rome, likely in Ephesus. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans 
and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. You'll notice in this that that Paul mentions a number of people by name. He starts out and he uh, he describes some people. Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus. He says Aristarchus and Mark send their own greetings, as does Jesus, who is called Justice. He goes on and he speaks about Epaphras. Epaphras, who had likely led the initial gospel witness and gospel preaching to the members of the church in Colossae, who had received his gospel from Paul, we see in chapter 1, had gone, gone on as a Colossian citizen to share the gospel there. He speaks of Luke, the doctor, the author of the gospel of Luke at the book of Acts, and Demas, Nympha whose church met in her house in Colossae, and Archippus. A number of individuals, a a number of cities, a couple of different church communities mentioned. What's interesting here, I will just say for those of you with a a congregational or Baptist background, uh, some of you read months ago an article I did in our newsletter uh, about Uh, invitations in church, and I sort of chronicled the way church was done uh, when I was growing up, and and it was sort of like uh, a franchise. It didn't matter what Southern Baptist church you went to, that's what you experienced, whether it was rural Texas or uh, downtown Baltimore or anywhere else. But one of the things you would do is you would invite people to join by transfer of letter, by transfer of letter. Now, the transfer of letter system doesn't really have any biblical roots, but it has biblical reflections in a passage like this. Now, the struggle we have is that we, uh, we practiced that sort of system of exchanging members uh, rather dishonestly, uh, because anytime a letter was requested, you just sent it. Uh, Paul's very honest as he describes people. It's interesting if you look in verse 14 where he Um, describes Luke as a dear friend and the doctor, he mentions a man named Demas, who in 2 Timothy 4.10, he describes as having deserted him and deserted the faith in pursuit of material um, possessions and materialistic lifestyles. Uh, We're not not very honest uh, with that system. It's why I, one of the many reasons I'm not a fan of it at all. I remember having a conversation not too long after I got here uh, with a sweet lady, and we were talking about this, this system, and I said, I don't mind us doing that. We'll certainly do that if churches request it, but we're going to be honest. So if someone was a massive tool here and left to go to another church, we're going to let them know, you're probably going to have issues with this person. Because pastors, at least, would like an honest warning. But that's also faithful to Scripture. That's what Paul does. He lets churches know the truth about who he's traveling with. And as we find his characteristics here, we see revealed some kingdom values, the first of which is faithfulness. The first of which is faithfulness, a basic kingdom value that I will tell you, I don't think we hold, we certainly don't hold culturally in high esteem today in our nation, and I don't think in most churches 
and certainly in the lives of most believers, it's held in very high esteem. But look at the wording of Paul. Look in verse 7, how he describes Tychicus. He describes him, among other ways, in verse 7, as a faithful minister. A faithful minister. Now, he's not referring in the kind of paid vocational sense, but as someone who's really given his life, he's fully bought in to the kingdom purposes of God. The word minister here is just diakonos, the same word we use for deacon. It's someone who's been caught up fully and is co-laboring with Paul to see the gospel advanced. Look at verses 9 and 10. He describes Onesimus here, who is the same Onesimus Paul writes about in his letter to Philemon, who was an individual in the church in Colossae who had uh, previously had Onesimus as a slave. Onesimus had fled Philemon and through the providence of God had come to meet Paul, had come to faith in Jesus Christ, become a brother in the gospel. And Paul writes the letter to Philemon, and likely the letter to Philemon and to the Colossians were carried back together at one time. He mentions Onesimus here, and he describes him as our faithful and dear brother in verse 9. Faithful and dear brother. He goes on in verse 10 to describe Aristarchus as my fellow prisoner. And the wording here is literally my fellow prisoner of war. Not in the sense that uh, Aristarchus is a a fellow servant or slave or prisoner of Jesus Christ in a general way, which Paul would talk about sometimes, but that Aristarchus is in prison either with Paul or somewhere for the sake of the gospel, for his faithful commitment to Jesus Christ and the gospel. Paul says something else about this in Ephesians chapter 1, in his introduction to the church in Ephesus, Paul writes and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And I just want to remind you uh, that the reason uh, people in antiquity would start with their names instead of conclude with their names like we do is because when you carried a letter, it was rolled up. It was a scroll. So when you got there, you began unrolling it. The name would be at the top. You would see who it was coming from and what it was about and who it was to address, who it was addressed to. Look at verse 1 of Ephesians 1 again. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. When Paul describes the church in Ephesus, he describes them as God's holy people. And when he unpacks what that means, who is it that constitutes God's holy people? He says it is the faithful in Jesus Christ the faithful in Jesus Christ. We have a lot to learn about basic faithfulness. Even in a, just to basic church attendance, I mean, we couldn't scratch the surface, um, most of us, of the kind of faithfulness Paul is talking about here, of men and women giving their lives and the fullness of their resources and their energies for the furtherance of their gospel while working their regular vocations, tending to their families, living where they lived, but seeking to advance the gospel there by any and all means possible. And this is where I thank God for those in the church right now, in our setting, in our day, who are in their 60s and 70s and 80s because they're holding us together. 
by their faithful commitment to Christ's church to be here, to serve to the, uh, to the degree that they're able, and to give faithfully, financially, as God has commanded us to in Christ. While those of us in our 50s, and especially our 40s and 30s or tw- and 20s, are having to figure out what it, what it means to be an actual disciple of Jesus. Because we're coming um, up in a culture now that says, if you don't th- think something is going to immediately and personally and individually benefit you, don't worry about it. And I would say two things about that. One, it's self-centered to a ridiculous degree, and communities can't stand and societies can't hold together that way. It's, it's antithetical to the gospel. We'll see more about that in just a minute. But also... It's amazing that those of us who've been redeemed by Christ don't see enough benefit in that to be driven to faithful worship simply out of gratitude. Which I would imagine means one of two things. We either haven't really been redeemed, we don't have a regenerate heart where the Holy Spirit of God lives in us and dwells in us and is remaking us. Or we don't really understand the fullness of the gospel and what's happened in our lives. We've got a lot to learn here. And I would just encourage you, if you want to grow as a believer, and I've never met anybody that said, no, nah, I really don't. I've met people who, whose lives said that and whose practices said that, but if you ask them, they would at least give lip service to wanting to grow. Yeah, I want to grow. If you want to grow as a believer, seek out and support Seek out and support brothers and sisters in Christ who are, in the words of Paul, faithful ministers and fellow servants of Jesus Christ. They will teach you much. And they'll rub off on you. And they'll learn some from you. These are men and women who are, again, in the words of Paul, fellow workers for the kingdom, who spend their energies and their resources and their time on gospel purposes and the ministry of Christ's church. I'm so thankful, so thankful for the background in church I have. I I wonder if you will join me just quickly in this little exercise. Um, I want you to think about it. Let me talk first to those of you that grew up in church. You grew up in church. I want you to, to think back to the church that you grew up in. I want you to picture it. I want you to picture the sanctuary, the worship center, picture the ministers, the people there, the pews probably, may have been chairs. Think about the sounds and the smells, the rhythms of the church you grew up in. Maybe some of you didn't grow up in church, but you've been a believer a long, long time. I want you to think about the church you came to faith in or around the ministry of, where you first started getting active where you were hungry and thirsty for the Word of God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and your growth seemed to accelerate month by month and year by year as God was meeting your hunger. How many of you, just quick show of hands as you're thinking, think about the people there. How many of you can think back to specific people who the very act of their faithfulness week in and week out, week in and week out, week in and week out, was a demonstration to you about what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Look at that, look around, keep them up and look around. We can move around, we can almost be Pentecostal. Look around. Yeah, put them down now. 
This is itself a witness. This is itself a witness to the power of the gospel. Don't ever think that it doesn't matter that your faithfulness simply in attendance. Like I said, we could go much, much deeper, but let's start there. That your faithfulness in attendance doesn't matter. It matters. It matters to you. It matters to people sitting around you. It matters to our teenagers and our children who are looking and seeing and being formed by who's here all the time and where they're sitting and who's smiling at them and who says hi. Man, I miss the days when uh, in Sunday school, the greatest guy there was the guy that smelled like cigars and had gum for you. Like, I can remember that distinctly. In fact, I can remember the cigar thing in his pocket. He's like, oh, no, let me say those are for me, son. Here you go. Here's some, some Wrigley Spearmint, you know? We've lost the value on faithfulness, but I will tell you this, faithfulness is a kingdom value demonstrated ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ and the steadfast love of God that will not let you go, that will not let you go. That's not the only kingdom value though. We see a second one here and it's the kingdom value of fellowship. And I wasn't looking for F's, alliteration sort of annoys me. But sometimes it just kind of flows like that. And so just as I don't work for it, I don't try to crash it when it happens. But fellowship, and when I say fellowship here, I'm talking about the the full meaning of the Greek word koinonia. I'm not talking about Christians gathering uh, simply and, and having a potluck dinner. I'm talking about the essence of the Christian life that is fellowship with God and fellowship with one another, with other believers, where yes, we eat together, but we also share our brokenness in smaller groups with one another. We pray for one another. We provide for one another. We give grace to one another. We love one another. We share with one another. We forgive one another. We bear one another's burdens. We laugh with one another and experience joy together. We weep with one another and share the burden of loss and grief together. Look at how Paul describes this kind of fellowship among believers. Look back in verse 7 as he talks about Tychicus. Before a faithful minister, he says, he is a dear brother. A dear brother. This is Christian language, that in Christ, God is making us into a new family. That as you look around, you're given a family of origin, a biological family, but you're given a family of faith too. You're given a family of faith. He says, Tychicus is a dear brother, a dear brother. This is a picture of fellowship, of koinonia, of deep Christian community. Look at what he says about Tychicus, when he comes to the the Christians in Colossae, he comes that they might know about Paul's circumstances, and then look at verse 8, that he may encourage your hearts. There's no encouragement that can be given you who are in Christ like can be given you by another brother or sister in Christ. Who knows who you are in the deepest parts? Who knows your struggles? who accepts your pain and your shortcomings and who prods you with love and encouragement and sometimes a firm hand on toward Christ. Christian encouragement is a picture of fellowship. 
Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, Epaphras is wrestling in prayer for you. Wrestling in prayer for you. This is a picture of Christian fellowship. This is why we have to not only gather large, but gather small. If you've come uh, through our membership class lately, you have committed yourself to gathering large and gathering small when we gather large and we gather small as a church. Because we need smaller groups of believers where we can be known and we can know others. And we can share our real self a little more and a little more. In verse 15, in verse 15, he describes the believers in Laodicea as brothers and sisters. These are people Paul has not met. But he's talking about the fellowship, the union we have in Christ. He's revealing the truth that I have more in common with a Christian brother or sister in India than I do a non-Christian living across the street from me in Georgia. There's a unique kind of kinship between individual brothers and sisters in Christ. But Paul doesn't just talk about fellowship in the context of individuals here like we've been looking at. He deals with groups. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. Verses 10 and 11. He says, my fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Down in verse 11, Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends you greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God. What Paul is saying is, among this cohort that is, cohort that is co-laboring with me for the advance of the gospel are Jews and Gentiles who now have become one in Christ. Jews and Gentiles from different ethnic and racial backgrounds, different cultures and worldviews, different value systems who now have come together as one in Christ. Verse 9, we looked at him mentioning Onesimus as a faithful and dear brother who is one of you. He's saying he's a Christian and he's a citizen of Colossae. He's a, he's a Christian and he belongs to the people of Colossae. And what he's saying here is that in Christ, there's not slave or free anymore. This man is not, I'm not sending him back to you as Onesimus the slave. I'm sending him back to you as Onesimus, our dear brother in the faith. Our dear brother in the faith. Paul is saying, not only are Jew and Gentile one, but slave and free are one. They have one master, one Lord to whom they will give an account, one Lord to whom they owe gratitude and worship for their salvation. But he goes even a little further to the oldest point of human conflict that we know, male and female. Verse 15, he says, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. The church in her house. Just years before, it would have been unthinkable to mention the name of a Jewish woman and talk about maybe the synagogue that gathered in her home, the group of Jews that gathered in her place to pray. But just as Paul said in Galatians, he says, uh, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew 
nor Gentile, slave nor free, no male and female, which is actually how the Greek is there. No male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it's not that Paul was not gender binary. He was gender binary. But he was saying what is the defining characteristic of your life now is not that you are a male or that you are a female, but that you are in Christ. Not that you are slave or free, but that you are in Christ. Not that you are Jew or Gentile or American or African or Russian or Indian or Iranian or anything else, but that you are in Christ. He's saying there's a unique fellowship that the gospel has broken down the dividing walls and the barriers between human beings. This is the manifold wisdom of God, that men and women would come together worshiping as one family in Christ across all socioeconomic groups, across races, across ethnicities, across ages. And it's a testimony even to the beings of heaven. Romans Chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Paul makes a statement that is as antithetical and countercultural to our, um, our culture as anything he could say in Scripture. Romans 12, 4 and 5, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, we, though many, Form one body. Now listen to what he says. And each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. That is a as countercultural a statement as you can make in a nation that has an idolatrous view and passion of individualism. You belong to me and I belong to you. You belong to one another because you're in Christ. He's Savior and Lord, and he calls the shots. And he says, you're, you're in me. You belong to one another. What you do impacts one another. Right? There's a practical and spiritual sense in which Paul works this out in other places in the Bible. That's very, very real. Our wins, our losses, our sins, our faithfulness affects one another. The kingdom value of fellowship is the sweetness that non-Christians who are processing their way to faith comment about again and again and again in churches where they come to faith. I've just not seen anything like this. I was listening to a podcast interview this week of a guy who was a former agnostic, um, academic, intellectual guy for years and years and years and years. And came to faith in Christ, he said, primarily due to the gospel witness in a church where he started going simply out of curiosity, invited by another academic friend to come. As he watched these people who were such a peculiar people in his own term, the way that they loved one another. There was no place else in my life where I saw the diversity of people hanging out and enjoying one another and honoring one another and loving one another that I saw in the local church. And it was that sweetness of fellowship, of koinonia, the true union that we have, not just to Christ, but to one another, that puts flesh on the gospel, that demonstrates that the gospel is what we claim it to be. But there's a third 
and final kingdom value that I'll at least call your attention to this morning. And it is the value of finishing strong. The value of finishing strong. I want you to think about where you are in your, your sort of Christian walk. Paul would use a lot of athletic and military language and metaphors uh, throughout his letters. Many of you are familiar with Paul talking about running the race, running his race, you running your race with perseverance that God has marked out before you. Can we just admit that, um, man, we're, we're in a season, have been for several decades now, where we see a lot of people not finishing strong. We see a lot of people not finishing strong. But Paul highlights this. Look again, if you will, at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. The, the verb here for stand firm means continue in your faith, established and steadfast, that you're unrelenting, that even through the dark night of the soul, even through the seasons where it doesn't feel like God is there, even through times in your life where financially you feel like you can't, you can't handle the strain any longer, maybe you've got relationship issues, maybe you've got prayer that has gone unanswered, Stand firm, continue in your faith. If you look back at chapter 1 of Colossians, verses 22 and 23, Paul uses some of this exact same wording fleshed out. Chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 of Colossians, Paul says, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Before I go on, there's a yearning in most of us as human beings to breathe deeply and to know that anyone, much less God, would look at us and see us as without blemish and free from accusation. Church, that's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means that Christ takes on your sin and imputes to you his righteousness, the lens through which God the Father views you. Now, this has happened, Paul says, verse 23, if, if you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Stand firm. He goes on in verse 17 to tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. All of you, if you're followers of Jesus, have received some kind of ministry. You have received spiritual gifts, the New Testament says, that have been given to you at the sovereign choosing of the Holy Spirit. And those gifts exist only to glorify Jesus Christ and build up the church, advancing the mission of the gospel. So regardless of your talents, maybe you were like you were never picked, right? You were on the team. You were the last one standing. Anybody ever have that fear when they say, team captain, team captain, now choose your teams. You're like, dang it. Every time this happens. And then you just tell yourself, they just fear my athleticism. <laughs> right? 
They just fear my athleticism. I don't even know why I said that. Stand firm. Stand firm. This is what Jesus said, recorded throughout the Gospels when he said, those who persevere or those who stand firm until what will be saved? The end. Because true, genuine faith, regenerate faith, where the Spirit of God lives in you now, is not up to you. It's a gift God's given you. And it will endure until the end. Finish strong. Stand strong. N.T. Wright in his commentary on Colossians says that Epaphras is praying, like Paul, that this young church will understand what it is that God is doing and order their lives accordingly, growing into well-grounded Christian and human, for that matter, beings. Let's take a look at some other comments from Paul on the 2 Timothy chapter 4, one that will be familiar to some of you. As Paul is getting to the end of his life and he knows that his death is imminent, he says, I have fought a good fight, 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He's saying, by the grace of God, I've finished strong. This is a kingdom value. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. The writer of Hebrews is as clear about this kingdom value of standing strong as you can get. He says, we have, verse 14 of Hebrews 3, we have come to share in Christ if, Indeed, we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. We hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Some of you, some of you are closer than not to finishing your race this morning. How are you doing? My prayer for you is that you will blaze all the way to the end leaving no doubt that you belong to Jesus Christ. And at your funeral, we can say, this man, this woman now stands in the presence of Jesus. In the full radiance of his glory, waiting with him until the Father says, go get him. That's it. This week we saw the passing of Queen Elizabeth in England. Hard to understand for a lot of Americans the significance that the royal family holds uh, for the United Kingdom and the entire uh, British Commonwealth. I was listening to newscasters uh, interview uh, a British reporter this week. And he said, for those of us in the United States who kicked off the monarchy quite a while ago, what would you say to us it is about Queen Elizabeth, about the monarchy, that makes it so significant to our British brothers and sisters? And he said, first I would say it was her dogged faithfulness her dogged faithfulness 
for 70 years to be completely apolitical. And he said this, he said, her faithfulness gave a sense of security and stability to the United Kingdom. As the band makes their way back out here and prepares to lead us in a time of response and reflection through worship, um, I want to tell you this morning, of these three kingdom values that, that we find very clearly throughout the writings of Paul and brought to the surface in his concluding remarks in his letter to the church in Colossae, faithfulness, fellowship, and finishing strong, it is faithfulness that makes possible the other two values. It is faithfulness that provides the fuel and the means by which you and I can experience the beauty and the power and the sweetness and the joy of Christian fellowship and of finishing strong. Without faithfulness, we will not know those other values. So I want to just close by asking you this morning, if you would, however faithful you feel you are to Christ, to his church, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, that as we stand in just a minute and we pray and those of you who um, are baptized believers and feel led to do so, um, observe communion and we sing together, that you would just say, God, God, I give you whatever measure of faithfulness I have and have been and am. I thank you by your grace and your mercy. And I ask you to help me be more faithful. I commit to you to be a greater reflection of your faithfulness in my life. Would you do that this morning? Would you recommit simply to being faithful? I think all of us in here probably have areas of our life, whether it's in corporate disciplines like gathering for worship, singing, participating in a small group or a Bible study, or private personal disciplines. There there's a place or places in our lives where we could say, God, I need to recommit myself to faithfulness to you. Would you stand this morning? As we stand, that is my prayer. My prayer for you as a church is that you will stand strong and stand firm, running the race that Christ has for you as individuals and has for us as a church, moving deeper and deeper into the beauty and the transformation of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that through your faithfulness and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, we as broken, sinful, finite human beings might have the power to be faithful ourselves to the call of the gospel in our lives, to the ministry that you've given each of us. God, I pray if there are people in this room this morning who are believers, Jesus, who are followers of yours, and they don't know what their ministry is, I pray this morning, God, today that you would begin revealing that to them in a way and at a time of your choosing, God, but let it begin this morning. God, I pray that all of us would look in our own hearts 
in our own lives at areas of unfaithfulness to you. Unfaithfulness, God, to the call that we have to to love our spouses as we should. Maybe unfaithfulness to the call that we have to disciple our families. God, together, the vast majority of time when your people gather, taking seriously the act of worship, preparing our hearts and minds the night before. God, taking your word seriously and seeking to read and obey and experience you as we do. God, whatever it is, reveal that to us. Let us lift that up to you. Seek your forgiveness and recommit to you by your grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to ever-increasing degrees of faithfulness throughout all areas of our lives. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.